Hey, this is Dan, and thanks for joining me for this edition of the Law by Dan podcast. I've been a lawyer now for close to 25 years, and needless to say, I have met and continue to meet lawyers who are extraordinary, inspirational, and simply outstanding at what they do. So this episode is me talking with such a lawyer. I hope you find it interesting. In December 2018, Cardinal George Pell was convicted of abusing two choir boys in the 90s during his reign as the Archbishop of Melbourne. And as we know, two years later, the High Court of Australia quashed the convictions in what was a unanimous decision, and Cardinal Pell was immediately released from prison. Sadly, one of the former choir boys died in 2014 of a drug overdose, and his father was notified by police about the alleged abuse of his son approximately 12 months later. The father launched legal action against Cardinal Pell and the Catholic Archdiocese of Melbourne in the Supreme Court of Victoria, suing both the Cardinal and Church for damages for nervous shock relating to finding out about those allegations of sexual abuse. After a little argy-bargy brought by lawyers for the church, Justice MacDonald of the Victorian Supreme Court gave a green light for the deceased father to commence proceedings as a secondary victim. To discuss the journey to date, I'm with Shine Lawyers Chief Legal Officer Lisa Flynn. Lisa, I bet it was a relief for all involved to have the decision by the court last week. It, it certainly was. It was important for our client who certainly does believe that the church is one of the responsible parties for what happened to him and so what happened to his son sorry and so to have the court determine that the church wasn't able to escape liability due to technical reasons involving the Ellis defense was an important victory for our client in the process. We're going to talk about the Ellis defence in a moment, but for listeners who may be a little perplexed about this case, given that the convictions against Pell were quashed by the High Court, how does a civil case now derive given that Pell was essentially found not guilty of sexual abuse? Yeah, so the criminal justice system and the civil justice system are in this respect in that just because there was the finding of the High Court in terms of of the conviction and overturning that conviction, it doesn't preclude our client from bringing a civil claim for damages that he alleges arise out of as a result of learning that his son was subjected to abuse or alleged abuse by George Pell, the standard of proof in a criminal trial is beyond reasonable doubt and the focus of the criminal justice system is really designed to punish the perpetrator of the crime. The civil case and the civil justice system, the burden of proof is on the balance of probabilities and the focus of the civil justice system is to really um, focus on the impact that the abuse and learning of the abuse has had on the plaintiff in order to determine an appropriate award of compensation. So just because there isn't a criminal proceeding or there's a failed criminal prosecution, it doesn't preclude a civil case from being brought. The onus will still be on the plaintiff to prove on the balance of probabilities that the abuse occurred, that the defendants are responsible for that abuse and that there has been injury and loss and damage suffered as a result of the abuse. And that is what our claim is. Our claim is brought on behalf of the father of the deceased 
choir boy who we allege was sexually assaulted by Cardinal and the claim is for compensation for the injury, loss and damage that our client as the father has suffered as a result of learning of the abuse that was perpetrated, he alleges, on his son. Lisa, you mentioned a moment ago the uh, the Ellis defence. For listeners, can you pull that apart? What does that actually mean? Sure. So the Ellis defence was something that, in, I, I guess in simple terms, it was a defence the church used for many years to shield itself from civil claims brought by abuse survivors. So it basically said that the church isn't an incorporated organisation and therefore can't be sued. And so it was really a technical defence to say that the institution that was liable for the offence or for the assault and the abuse doesn't really exist, don't, doesn't have any assets or money and therefore they escaped having claims brought against them as a result of their ability to rely on this Ellis defence. And so that defence was certainly used by the Catholic Church for a number of years to deny survivors of abuse the ability to be able to even argue the case in terms of the damage that resulted as a result of the abuse that was subjected upon them. The Ellis defence was criticised heavily by the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse and the Royal Commission made recommendations that institutions and organisations shouldn't be able to rely on, uh, I guess, tricky sort of trust and associations to avoid liability for damages and damage that they have caused. And as a result of the recommendations made by the Royal Commission, each of the states and territories have enacted or in the process of enacting legislation that effectively removes the ability of the ability for institutions to deny access to justice through this technical Ellis defence. And the the, the states have legislated to ensure that organisations do have a duty to identify the proper defendant so that a plaintiff or an abuse survivor can bring a claim against the proper defendant that will have the assets and the means to pay the compensation if it is awarded for them. So that legislation was brought in in Victoria in around 2018, which effectively abolished the church's ability to rely on that Ellis defence when dealing with survivors of child sexual abuse. Lisa, given the Royal Commission was so scathing of the Ellis defence, was it a surprise to you when you learned that the lawyers acting for the church were going to resurrect it and try it on? It, it was, I think, disappointing that they did argue that they did want the right to rely on the Ellis defence by effectively arguing that the legislation abolishing the the Ellis defence, being the Legal Identity of Defendants Organisational Child Abuse Act of 2008 and 18, didn't extend to families of abuse victims. And so it was disappointing that the church did make that argument. However, the court heard arguments from the plaintiff and the defendant, being the church in this case, and made the determination that the act in 2018 certainly wasn't restricted to only 
the primary victim of the abuse, but also did extend to others who have suffered injuries as a result of that abuse, being family members, including our clients. Is that unusual for secondary victims to be awarded compensation, be it in other types of matters generally? The claim for a secondary victim is really a claim that's described as or referred to a nervous shock claim. And a nervous shock claim is available to people who have witnessed or have a very close relationship to someone who has suffered a traumatic event. So in, in these cases, so sorry, in the in these cases involving child abuse, nervous shock claims can be brought by close family members on learning that the abuse has occurred. They will need to have to be able to show that they have suffered a genuine psychiatric injury as a result um, of the circumstances and that the defendant ought to have foreseen to be capable of causing a person of normal fortitude to suffer a recognisable psychiatric illness if they didn't take reasonable care. So in this case, we would argue a parent on learning that their child had suffered sexual abuse when they were a child, it would be reasonable to foresee that person could suffer a psychological or psychiatric injury. And then we also need to prove that the, our client, as the parent, has suffered a recognised psychiatric injury as a result of learning of the abuse. And so in those circumstances, it is it is possible to bring claims for secondary victims in that respect, but there does have to be a proximate relationship between the person who suffered the abuse and the person wanting to bring the claim. And it has there does have to be a, a recognisable diagnosed psychiatric injury that has been caused by finding out about the abuse. Lisa, Shine lawyers have a really long history of sadly acting for many sexual abuse survivors and perhaps the most prominent being the Toowoomba Prep case of which Steve Roach wrote a book about and later its incarnation as a movie. From a legal perspective, how do these types of claims differ from other types of compensation claims generally? So in a few ways, so sometimes because there's often a, a delay in terms of when a person suffers abuse and when they're able to acknowledge and talk about what happened to them. So the Royal Commission found that I think on average it was around 26 or 27 years from on average for a person that has suffered abuse to be able to talk about the abuse. So in many of these cases, we are talking about events that did happen a number of years ago. And so that can bring challenges with it. And they can be quite, so in working with survivors of child sexual abuse, it can be really horrific hearing what happened to these people when they were vulnerable children and the and hearing about how their life has been irreversibly impacted and damaged as a result of, of what they were subjected to. And so I think that being able to be able to listen and sometimes clients are coming and t- telling the lawyer for the very first time what happened to them when they were a child. And so that can be 
quite challenging and very important to be able to respond in a trauma-informed way. So it is important and we do make sure that all of our lawyers who work in this space do have training and are trauma-informed so that we try and minimise any damage that, that we do ourselves in terms of the legal process for survivors of child sexual abuse. So that's an important, I think, differentiation in terms of making sure that our lawyers are properly trained to be trauma-informed and approaching these matters in that way. As I said, there are some challenges in, in terms of evidence and the fact that these things often happened a number of years ago. But I think as a result of the Royal Commission, again, there's some of the challenges that survivors of abuse have faced over the years have been removed. So the the Ellis defence, which we've spoken about, the removal of time limitation defences, really recognising that it can take survivors of abuse a number of years to come forward. So there's been some really positive changes that do remove some of the challenges that survivors of child sexual abuse face in bringing civil claims, but there's also, yeah, there's parts of, about the cases that do make them somewhat more challenging at times. I'm assuming also, Lisa, that shine lawyers are all, have always been reluctant to run matters if they don't think they're a winnable case because of the impact on the person that they're acting for. This must be particularly pronounced in these types of matters where you've got a person who has been through so much that you don't want to push through another ordeal unless you can win the case? Most definitely. We give our client, all of our clients certainly advice in terms of what we think are their prospects of success and we don't want anyone to have to go through the process if we don't think that there is a reasonable prospect of a of a successful outcome for them. And as you have identified, Dan, it's even more pronounced in this space. And we're very careful about giving survivors of abuse advice in terms of their legal rights and also their options in terms of the ability to bring a common law claim or the National Redress Scheme, which was set up in 2018, again, as a result of the Royal Commission. And we always give advice about what we think are the prospects of success and really making sure that it is worthwhile for our clients to go through the process. And we certainly wouldn't want a survivor of abuse who has already been through so much to go through a process that can by its very nature be quite re-traumatizing unless we did think that there were reasonable prospects of getting a successful outcome for them. I was a, a personal injury lawyer at Shine as you many years ago, and one of the things that I really detested most about brunting up against the lawyers for the defendant's insurance company was the fact that they invariably, early in a matter, you'd put forward a reasonable offer to have the matter settled, but then for it to be promptly knocked back by them. And then you'd fight for potentially up to three, four years, and then days before trial, you'd put the same offer forward again for only this time for it to be accepted. Do you experience the same type of frustration with these types of claims? Yes, at times it, it can be frustrating to when defendants take a particularly litigious response or approach to these claims and do drag them out, not making any reasonable offers to resolve the claim until, as you say, at the doorsteps of trial. And that can be 
very frustrating, particularly when working with survivors of child sexual abuse who have suffered really harrowing abuse and significant psychiatric injury as a result of the abuse. That there, there was the introduction of model litigant guidelines for state defendants in this space and certainly the Royal Commission recommended that those model litigant guidelines be adopted by all defendants in this space to really look at whether there are early chances for resolving the case without the need to go through protracted litigation. What we are seeing in practice is that some defendants are responding to these claims in a way that is in compliance with those model litigant guidelines and looking at making offers that are reasonable earlier in the process. But unfortunately, we still see some defendants who do take particularly litigious response, continue to defend and deny, and then only make reasonable offers at the doorstep of court if they do make them at all. And so, it is frustrating, as you say, where a matter could have been resolved at a much earlier time and avoided some of the pain and the damage that the process sometimes does cause for plaintiffs as well. The fact that intrinsic to the brand of these religious institutions is this sort of brand positioning around morality, does that in itself make these matters tough and arduous to fight, given that you're, you're fighting against an, another dimension? Where I see the, the real damage is where institutions put their reputation before people. And I think that has what uh, that's what's caused the abuse to be able to occur on such a widespread basis, in, in, particularly in the past, where institutions put the reputation at the forefront. They won't. They didn't respond when children made complaints of abuse. They were punished or told to be quiet. They weren't believed, and all of that sort of behaviour did lead to, unfortunately, the this significant abuse that occurred on such a widespread basis over a number of years. I think that when institutions continue to put their reputation over doing the right thing and responding to these claims appropriately, I, I find that very disappointing and it again causes significant damage and harm to these people that have already been through so much. It, yeah, sorry, that was what I would say. You've been doing this type of work now for many years, Lisa. How does it all cumulatively impact on you on a personal level? I think that's something is at the forefront of our minds in terms of ensuring that all of our lawyers who do this type of work do have the ability to learn and about vicarious trauma, that it is a very real risk in doing this type of work. And so we do have within Shine certain protection around our people doing this work because it can be traumatic to be exposed to these stories and to deal with the content that we deal with. Um, all of our people that do work in this space find it, and I am exactly the same, I think we all find it very rewarding work. We acknowledge and understand that it's a real privilege to be able to represent and assist survivors of abuse, to be able to be there and to listen to their story and to advocate for them when no one has done that for them in the past. I think certainly there's pressures that come with that, but certainly it's a real privilege to be able to do that and that's how all of our team feel that, that do this important work. 
When you were studying law, Lisa, did you envision that your career would be where it is now? Ah, I always, when I was studying law, I always wanted to be a, I think, criminal lawyer, barrister. I think I was watching too much Law and Order or even some of the shows before that in terms of the the, the courtroom dramas and the excitement that goes along with that. But uh, having started at Shine while I was still at uni, I think in my third year, so I've been at Shine now for 23 or 24 years and it's been, yeah, and, and as you, you said, Dan, I have done abuse work throughout that time as well as different areas of work that I've worked at and different roles within the organisation. But I feel really lucky that I started at Shine and that I didn't follow that dream of being a criminal defence lawyer in the courts every day because, yeah, I really am inspired by our client and the work that our people do and the ability to help people in the civil justice space. So it wasn't exactly what I thought I was going to do, but I'm very happy doing what I do. For people listening to this podcast who may themselves have experienced sexual abuse or related to someone who has, what should their next steps? I think I would say that it's a very personal journey in terms of what is right for them for their own reasons. What I do think is important for people to be aware of is as much information and knowledge as possible because information is power and information can also give people choices and that in itself is very powerful to have choices and it's often what survivors and victims of child abuse never had. They didn't have the choice about what happened to them. And so I think that there is information in terms of different avenues that they may have to get assistance that they may need to continue to move forward with their life. And that could be medical medical treatment or counselling or exploring the criminal justice path or a civil justice path or knowing what redress or counselling services may be available. So what my advice would be is that... um, For every individual, their journey will be very individual, but the more information that they can find out about what options they do have can be quite powerful and helpful for them in their journey. Lisa, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Law by Dan podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you could give a rating, whether you're on Spotify, iTunes, or any other podcast platform. By the way, you can reach out to me should you wish at lawbydan.com.